Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to John chapter 19, the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. The words will be up there on the screen in back of me. John chapter 19. We just sang the wonderful cross and the power of the cross. And yet for those who had a front row seat to the cross, it wasn't wonderful. It didn't seem very powerful. It was horrible and shameful. In fact, the the dominant perspective on the death of Jesus for at least 200 years in Rome was that this was the most shameful death of all. In 1857, archaeologists uncovered a piece of anti-Christian graffiti dated back to the second or third century. This picture here, it's uh, traced on this side to see it better. John Dixon, author and historian, says this about this uh, piece of anti-Christian graffiti. The crude drawing shows a crucified man with a donkey's head indicating stupidity By the way, it was traced over here to see it a little bit better. Next to the cross stands a man with arm raised in adoration toward the figure on the cross. And below the image, scribbled in very bad Greek, are the words, Alexamenos worships his God. The most plausible explanation of this graffiti imagines Roman guards taking perverse pleasure in deriding an incarcerated Christian named Alexamenos by depicting his Lord as a mule-headed loser. In an honor-shame culture, what else could Jesus' crucifixion have meant? What else could Jesus' crucifixion have meant? Well, if you're new with us, we're in a series called On the Same Page. We're walking through the storyline of the Bible, and so far we have seen that, that in the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We saw in the introduction, he went public with his glory, and the pinnacle of his, cre- of his creation was you and me, human beings made in the image of God, which is something that we are and something that we do. We are to be reflections of God out into the world. We're to display and reflect his character, his love, and his goodness for all. It's also something that we do. We're to fill the earth and subdue it. We're to rule as his representatives all over the world to show this world what it means to live under the good rule and reign of our great God. We're to cause things to flourish, to make things better. And yet we saw last week the problem is that all of us have sinned and that has led to shame. Just like Adam and Eve, we've tried to cover up this shame, to, to hide And yet we can't, we continue to struggle with sin and shame until the Lord comes after us and pursues us just like he did for Adam and Eve and to cover us with his love and grace in Jesus. And so now we've come to the climax of the story. 
The climax is really the high point of the story, right? When you're studying English literature, the, the climax is the high point of the story where typically the, the hero defeats the villain, where the, the conflict is probably coming to this head at this, at this climax, this climactic scene. Well, ironically, in the story of God and his gospel, the high point is the lowest point. The cross is the climax to the story where the victim is actually the victor. Where it appears as though this is an unexpected loss is actually a planned and purposeful win. And so today I wanna to look at the death of Jesus on this cross for us. I wanna see that how, how his last words are lasting words. They make a lasting impact on our lives. His ending is our beginning. So let me read John 19, verses 28 to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So the context, we see this first verse, verse 28, after this, after, after what? After the previous night and earlier that morning, all these events have happened, and you're familiar with the story. Let me just kind of uh, recap what has happened up to this point. So the previous night, he'd gathered with his disciples for this Last Supper together where he would tell them that they would all fall away and that one of them was going to betray him. So Judas betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. His disciples abandon him, and he's dragged away to be put on trial to incriminate an innocent man. He's flogged repeatedly. He's robed in mockery. He's, he's spit on with shame, made to drag through the streets this cross and finally to be nailed to this piece of wood. Darkness begins covering the land. Earth is shaking. Tombs are opening, signifying the end has come. The time has drawn near. And in that moment, Jesus, in verse 28, it says, knowing that all was now finished. In other words, he was consciously aware that this was coming to an end. His life was coming to an end. This was not the first time we hear him say words like this. In John 13, verse 1, says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So even as he's gathered with his disciples, about ready to wash the feet of those who would soon betray him and abandon him, he knew this was the hour, this is the time for him to die. In John 18, verse four, we see him say this. In the context, Judas is now coming with this big band of soldiers to arrest him, and it says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? He knew 
what was going to happen to him. This was planned. This was purposeful. This was not an unexpected thing. The hour had now come. So I want you to see that from the outset here that Jesus is not coming into this moment as an unexpected tragedy. This was a planned, purposeful victory. And so two things Jesus finished at the cross for us when he declared it is finished. I'm going to look at two things today that he finished for us. Number one, he fulfilled the scriptures. He fulfilled the scriptures. And number two, he completed our redemption. He fulfilled the scriptures and he completed our redemption. So let's start with that first one. He fulfilled the scriptures. Look again at verses 28 and 29. So after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So this first thing he utters from his lips is, I thirst. Now, why would he say that? I mean, the obvious reason is he's thirsty. He's dehydrated at this point. Now, one of the greatest understatements in all of Scripture is in John 19, verse 18. It's right up here. We have it written here. It says, there they crucified him. One of the greatest understatements of the Bible, including Genesis 1-6, and he made the stars also. That's a pretty big understatement, right? Just all those trillions of gigantic balls of gas. He did that also. But here it says, there they crucified him. Why didn't it say more? Why didn't you give us more of the details of what that looked like and what that felt like? And here's why. Back then, everyone knew in that culture how horrific and how horrible and how shameful this death really was. And crucifixion had a way of slowly suffocating its victim. They couldn't even lift themselves to breathe. And so here's Jesus, no doubt dehydrated at this point in time. He had hung there on the cross for six long hours and he needed something to drink. I think there's a deeper reason. We see it right here in the text. It was to fulfill the scripture. Even at that moment, his primary concern was to fulfill the scripture. So what scripture is he fulfilling as he thirsts? Back in Psalm 69, I think he had this psalm on his mind. He was meditating at least on this one and another one. In Psalm 69, David writes this in verses 19 to 21. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. By the way, did you notice shame and dishonor? This is throughout the culture. We don't live in an in a honor-shame culture, but Jesus sure did. So this was, this was part of David's life as well. His enemies were shaming him. Verse 20, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. Notice verse 21. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst, They gave me sour wine to drink. By the way, this was the cheap stuff. This was not the the wine that was offered to him as a sedative prior to that that he refused. He wanted to take the full brunt of the wrath of God. 
This was just watered down sour wine. But here it is. He's thirsting to fulfill what David said here in Psalm 69. I think Psalm 22 is also on Jesus' mind here, where it says in verse 15, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. David describing his physical torment. Jesus uses that line to convey what's happening to him here on the cross. Listen, virtually every detail of Christ's crucifixion was prophesied in advance. I want you to just to listen to this litany of verses here that Jesus fulfilled. First, his betrayal by a friend in Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The disciples forsaking him in Psalm 31, verse 11. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. The false accusations that were against him in Psalm 35, verse 11. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. His silence before the judges, Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His, his formal acquittal in Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. His death beside two criminals was prophesied in Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The, the crucifixion itself in Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. The mocking of the onlookers in Psalm 109, verse 25. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. The soldiers who were gambling for his clothing in Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Even his prayer for his enemies. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. His, his being forsaken by God. In Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? In his yielding up of his spirit into the Father's hands in Psalm 31, verse five, into your hand I commit my spirit. And finally, the preservation of his bones from being broken. In Psalm 34, verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. All of that and more was foretold by the prophets. That's incredible. And surely it's what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians verse First, chapter 15, verse 3, where he writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance, in accordance with the scriptures. So listen, Jesus, when he died and says, It is finished, he came to fulfill the scriptures. All the prophecies, all the promises, all the pointers accomplished in one person. Every story 
every single page fulfilled in the person of Jesus. I've said this before, if you're kind of new to the Bible, sometimes you look at the Bible and at first glance you think, well, this is just a bunch of unrelated stories, you know, just kind of thrown all together. But as you read through the scriptures, you see that there is a red thread, right? The more you read, the more you're going to see this. There is a red thread weaved throughout. The person of Jesus is all over the pages of these scriptures, All of the Old Testament is pointing forward to this Savior and his death on the cross for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it says this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises are fulfilled in Jesus. We say amen. They have been confirmed. All these prophecies, 300 and more, have been confirmed and fulfilled in Christ. I picture all the promises tied together like hundreds of balloons. Can you imagine this, kids? Hundreds of balloons tied together on the finger of Jesus. All the promises of God's word, they're all in Jesus. He holds them all together. That's why he came. He came to fulfill the scriptures. That's why he died. He was finishing and fulfilling the scriptures. Secondly, he completed our redemption. He completed our redemption. Look at verse 30 again. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now this phrase, it is finished in the English, is just one word in the Greek. Many of you have heard this, to telestai in the Greek language. And so we needed three words to convey the meaning here in this one word in the Greek, which actually the word means completed or accomplished. It is accomplished. It is completed is what Jesus is saying here. And so what, what is he getting at? What, what does he mean by this? Back in John 17, 4, Jesus had used this language uh, before. He said, I glorified you on earth, he's speaking to the Father now, having accomplished, that's to telestai, the work that you gave me to do. So th- this is what he came for, to, to fulfill the Father's will, to accomplish the work he gave him to do. In John 4:34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, to telestai, his work, to accomplish his work. And so what has been accomplished? What has been completed? Well, firstly, in our redemption, he has put an end to all religious and sacrificial systems. We cannot approach God based upon our religion or any sacrifices that we bring to him. In the context Uh, Tim read these verses in John 19, verse 14. We see it was the day of preparation and Passover. It was about the sixth hour is what it says in John 19. And so this is a significant detail, and many of you know your Old Testament, but just kind of travel with me back in history a little bit. And so the Jewish people every year would remember what happened to them when Pharaoh uh, wouldn't let them go. 
And finally, God sent this last plague, the angel of death. And he told the people that in order for you to be protected, in order for you to have this angel of death pass over you, you've got to take a lamb without blemish, without any broken bones. That's a significant detail as well. As well. And you're to take the blood and to smear it with a hyssop plant on the door frames of your home. And the angel of death, when he comes, will pass over your house. And so year after year after year, they would would sacrifice this, this lamb to take away their sin, to remember what he had done. But when Jesus came, remember what John the Baptist said? Behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Here was the lamb that we've been waiting for. He was the lamb without blemish, lived a perfect life of obedience, never sinned once. And when he died, the text says he had no broken bones. He was a perfect lamb without blemish, without any broken bones. And notice, in the presence of a hyssop branch, did you notice that in verse 29? A hyssop branch was held to his mouth, signifying this was the one who has come to smear his blood, not on the door frames of our home, but here on this cross for us to take away our sin. He was the perfect and final sacrifice for our sins. The writer of Hebrews picks this theme up in Hebrews chapter nine, where he writes, he entered once for all, that's Jesus, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. One chapter later says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Notice, one offering for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, and then he sat down. Down. Why did he sit down? His work was done. The work of redemption was full and complete. So listen, he came to complete our redemption. It is finished. To telestai means that there is no more sacrificial, no more religious systems. We can't approach God on the basis of our works, our sacrifices. No, we approach him through the blood of Jesus You remember when Christ died, the temple of the curtain was torn from top to bottom. God did this, declaring you can now draw near. My son has paid the full price for you to come into my presence. Draw near. So the first reason here of our redemption, what does he accomplish? He's put an end to all religious and sacrificial systems. Secondly, he put an end to our biggest problem. He put an end to our biggest problem. What is that? Some of you might say, well, that's that's sin, right? Or or that's Satan, right? There, There is something even bigger that Christ came to save us from. R.C. Sproul, who is now with Jesus in heaven, tells a story once as a professor he was uh, really, really busy. He only had an hour of, of lunch, and he wanted to get away for a little while and just have some peace and quiet to eat. And as he was finishing up, he was trying to move pretty quickly to get back to a class that he was going to be teaching. And someone abruptly stopped him, a young gentleman, and asked him, are you saved? <laughs> in, in the rush, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, saved from what? 
and, and the guy kind of did like a double take, like, well, you know, like, do you know Jesus? And started giving him this little presentation, not knowing who he was, R.C. Sproul. And, and it reminded him, like, saved from what? Do you know what you're saved from? The main thing that you and I are saved from is the anger and wrath of God. Do you know that? And that's what Jesus came to bear for us on the cross. In Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. From the wrath of God. Jesus came to drink the cup of God's wrath on the cross. All of it. Every last drop of it. So when he said it is finished, he meant I have finished Drinking the full cup of God's wrath and anger that you deserve for your sin. That's what it means. To telestai. It's completed. It's done. In Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah prophesies of this event where he writes in Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice, God has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. A few verses later, Isaiah 53, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who killed Jesus? God, the Father, crushed his own son. Yes, at the hands of sinful men, but this was the Father's will. And some have a problem with that. I remember reading years ago uh, this little story that was kind of used um, as a way of describing what happened here in one person's mind. This was the analogy that was given. So there once was a train conductor who was responsible for lowering a bridge so a commuter train could safely pass. One day the conductor's young son came with him to work and while playing got trapped in the gears that lowered the bridge. As the train approached, the conductor realized his son's plight. Without enough time to rescue his son and with the train rushing toward the bridge, the conductor made the heart-wrenching decision to lower the bridge on his son so the people on the train could be saved. And that, some will tell you, is a picture of what God did for you. One pastor recalls hearing that story as a high school student and said, I hated that story. Didn't make me appreciate the cross more. I was mad at the conductor because it made the cross seem like some kind of cosmic accident that was supposed to make me feel indebted and guilty. And I agree, that is, that's a bad analogy. Jesus wasn't trapped when he died for us on the cross. He was working in tandem with his father to fulfill this plan of redemption. He was in complete control. In fact, in John 19, 30, I don't know if you caught this detail, when Jesus said it's finished, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He did this. We know from John 10, verses 17 and 18, 
that Jesus was in control here. It says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so Jesus was determined to die for you. Nothing was going to stop him from doing that. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, the joy of seeing you one day in eternity with him forever. So what does that mean for us? It is finished. Why is that so significant? His ending is our beginning. He did everything he came to do for you. He said it's done. It is finished. So what does that mean then for us? Two things. No performance on your part and no punishment on his part. No more performing on your part and no more punishing on his part. Performing. Some of us, even when we hear the words, it is finished, and we know this truth, when it comes right down to it, we still base a lot of our Christian life on how we're doing each day. It's, am I doing enough? You know, am I able to get my act together today that God would be pleased with me? Have I jumped through all the hoops for him? Have I climbed the ladder? Have I got enough brownie points stored up? Some of us, we're, we're trying to keep the, the, the beach ball under the water, right? We've got some things in our life where we know that our struggles in our life and we just hope that they don't come you know, up to the surface because that would be bad and then other people would also see them because we're not only performing, we're also pretending. And this is, this is a bad way to live the Christian life. It is finished means it is finished. No more performing for God. Romans 4, 5 says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You don't work for him. Brothers and sisters, you don't work for God. You believe in him as the one who has justified you, made you right with him based on your faith alone. Secondly, it's, it's not this punishment that's coming on his behalf anymore. All of that has been taken for you at the cross, right? It is finished means it is really finished, and nothing can ever change that. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He was condemned for you. So, so no, not even one ounce of condemnation is coming to you as a believer in Jesus Christ. That's all been taken for you. Guys, sometimes Christianity, it feels like we're living like, I better not screw up. That's not what Christianity is. It's, it's more like my chains have fallen off and I'm free. That's, that's Christianity. It's not, well, I'm walking on eggshells here. I better not screw up. It is finished. One of the things I forgot to mention, that tetelestai, the verb there, is in the perfect tense. Uh, in the Greek, um, we don't see this. In English, there's no equivalent to it. But what that means is that this has happened and it has ongoing effects in your life. Isn't that amazing? So you don't have to make some kind of penance before God for your sins because all those sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. They have been taken by him. It is finished, will continue to be, it is finished for the rest of your life. 
It's been taken care of for you, the cross. So how do we respond to that? Here's how I want to close. Three ways that we can respond to the finished work of Jesus. We receive it, we rest in it, and we rejoice in it. We receive it, we rest in it, and we rejoice in it. We receive it. In John 1, verse 12, John writes, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now listen to me here, hear me. There are some of us who grew up with the mentality that I'm going to work for things. I'm gonna be a hard worker and I'm gonna earn it and I'm gonna be proud of that because I accomplished that, I did it. And there's nothing wrong with that except for when you apply that to Christianity. There are some of you also in this room that, that you like to give but it's really hard for you to receive. It's a lot of us especially when someone wants to be extra generous toward you. Like, has, has someone ever come up to you and just wanted to bless you, just pour out generous gifts to you? And, and is your response, or have you heard this response, if you've been the one trying to give? Like, no, 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 I, I got this, I can do this, I don't need your help, I, I'm fine, I, I, I can do this on my own. What is that? It's pride right? It's control. Like, I want to be the one who does this so I can get the credit for it by, by working hard and earning this and doing this. I don't want to receive it from you. That seems like it's really, like, humbling to receive that. But listen, to receive the grace of the gospel, you've got to realize you can't work for this. You can't earn this. You've got to receive Jesus and believe in what he's done for you. He has finished the work. He, just want, he didn't want you to work for him. Some of us were wired to work for it, to get credit for it. No, you've got to come empty-handed. I have nothing. I need to receive, like a little child. Little children have no problem receiving gifts and good things. I've got to become more like them. So receive the finished work of Jesus. Secondly, rest in it, rest in it. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Jewish leaders wanted to add on to the law more and more burdens for the people to bear. Jesus says, I'm not coming to add on more burdens, more rules, more laws for you to follow. You come to me. I've lived a life you could never live. I've died in your place. You come to me, and I'll give you rest for your soul. You come to me for salvation. Come to him, rest in him. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus today, maybe you're like me, it's hard for you to rest. Just to be quieted by his love. Say, I've done it, Doug, I've got this. You rest, you rest in my love. So get off the religious treadmill some of you keep running on. I don't like treadmills. I'd rather run outside. Seems like you're stuck in one place, you're not getting anywhere. And that's how it feels sometimes if you're trying to do this, this life running and working and trying harder and doing better, it's not gonna work that way. He says, rest, rest in my grace, in my love. It is finished, it really is finished. And lastly, receive rest and rejoice. Rejoice in this, rejoice in this. Guys, this is worth celebrating what Jesus has done for us on the cross, right? 
I mean, I can't see your smiles, right? But I'm hoping that there's some smiles, you know, through those masks. Like, this is worth celebrating, getting excited about, right? We have been forgiven. We have been set free. It is finished, to telestai, completed. No more work on our behalf. We just receive the grace from Jesus every day. That is worth celebrating. It's victorious. He's won this for us. In Psalm 51, verse 12, David writes this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's your salvation that I want to have joy in. Restore that in me. May that be a prayer for us. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So let me end with this. To tell us die. It is finished. We don't know if, if Jesus said, I thirst to get one more word out before he died. Just, I just need a little to be able to get out this last word to tell us die. And we don't know if it was a whisper or a shout. But here's what we do know. This was not a whimper of defeat. This was a cry of victory. It is finished. It's completed. It's, it's accomplished. It's all done. This is not a whimper of defeat, a cry, but a cry of victory. It's not coming from a helpless victim, but from a conquering savior. This is not an unexpected loss, but a planned and purposeful win. It is finished. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, that the cross is not some shameful ending, but a victorious beginning. The work has been done. It's all been done. We can rest, we can receive, we can rejoice. And Father, I pray that if there's one here today that has been wrestling, wondering about their salvation, they would stop trying to work for you, they would stop trying to impress you, that they would come to you realizing you've done everything needed. It is finished. They would bow before you as a sinner and receive you as Savior. And Father, I pray that all of us in this room, we would have this restored joy in what you've done for us. You've set us free. We're alive now. We're forgiven. We don't have to work. We can rest in your grace. And you will empower us. As we, as we sink this truth into our bones, you will empower us to live the Christian life you, Jesus, being in us. And so we pray that we might receive this with joy. Hallelujah. For what you've done for us on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.